One of the most remarkable things about the biblical account of Israel and how God led in their activities is to review the ups and downs of how Israel listened and didn't listen to God. And I pose the question to you this morning, could it be that in the Seventh-day Adventist Church we are as guilty as ancient Israel? Could it be that we do not give enough credence and enough emphasis and enough humble submission to the Word of God and to the instruction of the Spirit of Prophecy? Are we guilty of many of the same trends and sins of the ancient Israelite people? I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that's why we need revival and reformation. That is why God has intended for His people at the end of time to humble themselves, to pray, to seek God's face, to understand what it means to truly fulfill the mission, the unique mission that God has entrusted into the hands of Seventh-day Adventists. We are to fall at the foot of the cross every day. You see, as we learned last night in one of those beautiful testimonies by the young people, when you truly allow the power of God to work in your life, something dramatic happens. I was thrilled as I listened to the testimonies of those young people. And as an introduction to our Sabbath School lesson this morning by Pastor Mark Finley, and he is the author of those lessons, and God has provided at the right time an emphasis again on revival and reformation, I want us to remember. We need to remember how God has led us in the past and His teaching in our past history, as Life Sketches, page 196, indicates. You see, the Israelites and their experience is summarized in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 23 and 24. And the Lord was speaking, but this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. You see, let's transition now to today. As Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And as we segue into our current modern setting in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we need to remember God's counsel. Never forget. And as I already mentioned in Life Sketches, page 196, we have nothing to fear for the future except that we forget the way the Lord has led us and His teaching in our past history. In April of this year, 
the General Conference Executive Committee celebrated 150 years of the establishment of the General Conference. May 21, 1863 was exactly the date upon which the General Conference was organized. We chose to meet in Battle Creek for our spring meeting of the Executive Committee. We had a wonderful experience there. Jim Nix, our very able leader in the White Estate, organized many activities, many presentations, many visits to historical sites. It was a thrilling experience. We met together in the Battle Creek uh, Tabernacle for the Sabbath services. We met during our spring meeting in Battle Creek to celebrate, and I put that in quotes, 150 years. But let me pose the question to you. Was it really a very happy and good celebration? 150 years and we're still here? You know, some people may wonder, well, how is it that we can even talk about the Lord coming before this time? Because the Lord is on his own time plan and you can't in any way affect God's return. I want to tell you, the Lord indicates to us that we can hasten his coming. And in the spirit of prophecy, in a wonderful book of evangelism, and this quote was from the year 1900, had the purpose of God been carried out by his people in giving to the world the message of mercy, Christ would ere this have come to earth, and the saints would have received their welcome into the city of God. I want to tell you, we are on the verge of Jesus' soon second coming. It is time for revival and reformation. It is time for us to remember God's leading in the past and to look forward with tremendous enthusiasm for what God is going to do for his people as we move into the end of time. It is time to be revived by his word, reading a chapter of the Bible every day, praying at seven o'clock or any time during the day for the power and the coming of the latter rain. You see, the Advent message is not going to be passed to another group of people. There's not going to be another remnant church. You and I are part of the final, last people group that God has prepared for the loud cry that is soon to come. Revival and reformation. It is preparatory for Jesus' soon return. And so, my brothers and sisters, as we now segue into our lesson study for this morning, presented by Pastor Finley, I want you to remember that God is leading in the life of his church and in, and in your life. Don't forget to focus on God's word. Don't forget to listen to the instruction of the spirit of prophecy. Don't allow anything to deter you from the leading of the Holy Spirit. Don't forget to engage in earnest personal prayer. 
Don't forget to share the Adventist message with others in mission to the cities and in many other ways. Don't forget Christ's precious sanctuary message, his priestly ministry for us in the most holy place at the present time. Don't forget how God has called you into this mighty movement. Don't forget the wonderful and marvelous 28 fundamental beliefs, every single one of them with Jesus Christ at the center. Don't forget to fall on your knees, to be revived and reformed through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's Word. Jesus is coming soon. And as spiritual Israel, we are asked the penetrating question, as posed by Joshua of old, who is on the Lord's side? Are you willing today, as we go into this Sabbath school lesson, to say with Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then, never to forget it. My brothers and sisters, as we move into the unfolding last days of Earth's history, remember how God has led us in the past and how he will lead us in the future. And if you are willing, as we go into the study of this lesson on revival and reformation, if you are willing to recommit yourself to a closer walk with the Lord and to allow him to move you in unprecedented ways as we come to the end of time, in the quietness of this auditorium, as we study the lesson on revival and reformation, as we think back 150 years at the beginning of the General Conference and look forward to Jesus soon coming, are you willing this morning to say, Lord, here I am. Use me. Are you willing? Amen. God bless each one of you. Our Sabbath school lesson this quarter focuses especially on the topic of revival and reformation. It's possible to use terms and not define them. When we talk about revival, what specifically do we mean? When we talk about reformation, what do we mean? Revival is the reawakening of God's grace in the soul. Revival has to do with the reawakening of spiritual life. It has to do with knowing Jesus afresh in a new every day. Like Lamentations so well describes it, his mercies are new every morning. So what is revival? Why do we need revival? It's like an old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it with the things above. So why does the church need revival? When you and I come to Jesus, our hearts are transformed by his grace, charmed by his love, and changed. But because we still have natures that are fallen, we tend to wander. So God invites us every day to come to the cross, to know Jesus afresh and anew. So revival is a daily experience in the life of the believer. It is daily experiencing God's grace. 
there will never be a time that believers do not need revival. It's a daily experience. What about Reformation? When we talk about Reformation, what are we speaking about? Are we speaking about reform and the Reformation in the days of Martin Luther? When we talk about Reformation, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a change of diet, a change of dress, a change of educational system, a change of medical system? When you use the term Reformation, it can be quite ambiguous and it may mean different things to different people. In fact, there's actually a group called Reform Adventists. So when we talk about Reformation, what do we mean in a biblical sense? Reformation in a biblical sense always follows revival. Revival is this renewal of spiritual grace in the soul. But Reformation has to do with the change of habits and attitudes and thoughts that leads me to a new lifestyle. So revival always leads to the reawakening of God's grace, and Reformation has to do with this reorganization of life, this reorganization of habits, this practical change of lifestyle where God points out things in my life through His Holy Spirit that need change. Now, in our series in the Sabbath School lesson, we are focusing on lesson number six, which is, which is confession and repentance. Why put a lesson on confession and repentance in, in a series on revival and reformation? Because as you look at revival down through the centuries, you look at revival in the history of Israel with Josiah, or look at David's prayers and Psalms, or you look at the revival in the days of the minor prophets, they all focused on repentance and confession. They all focused on coming to the point of a deep sorrow for sin. When you look at the book of Acts, repentance is all through the book of Acts. You look at Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 16 and 17, Acts 20 and onward. There is a great emphasis on repentance and confession. Now one of the things I want to do in the time we have together today is focus on this aspect, that if repentance leaves you in a place of sorrow, focusing on your own sins, that's not true repentance at all. The object of repentance is not to leave an individual more discouraged than before they repented. The object of all repentance is to focus on the goodness of Jesus, the marvels of His grace, the beauty of His love, so that I want to be more like Him. Any approach to repentance that says, oh Lord, I'm so wretched, oh Lord, I'm so wicked, oh Lord, I'm so evil, that leaves me wallowing in my sin, is not beneficial. That repentance that leads me to see how great Jesus is and long to be like Him is a repentance that motivates lifestyle change. Now, we look at repentance in Sunday's lesson, Repentance, God's Gifts, and if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Acts the, seventh, Acts the fifth chapter. Acts the fifth chapter. In my study of repentance, there was something that was quite obvious that I often overlooked. Here's a basic question. Is repentance something that we work up or something that God places within? Is repentance our desire to work up an emotional sorrow for sin, 
or is repentance a gift that God gives us? Acts, the fifth chapter. You're looking there at verses 30 to 32. I want you to notice them carefully. Acts chapter 5, verse 30 to 32. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him has God exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. Three things about the passage so far. First, the passage talks about the crucifixion of Christ. Christ hung on a tree, verse 30. Second, the passage talks about the resurrection of Christ, the God of our fathers who, G, who, was, who raised up Jesus, resurrection. Thirdly, the text talks about the high priestly ministry of Christ. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. So you have the death of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Now notice, because of Christ's death, because of Christ's resurrection, because of Christ's high priestly ministry, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to them that obey him. Now that text is packed. Christ died, Christ resurrected, Christ is our high priest, and he gives repentance to his people. So where does genuine repentance come from? Where does it come from, everybody? Is repentance a gift? Just as salvation is a gift, repentance is a gift. So as I kneel before Jesus every day, looking at the cross of Calvary, seeing his goodness, as I meditate upon his life, as I walk with him in the dusty streets of Galilee, as I travel with him down the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem, as I see Jesus touch the eyes of the blind and they're open, and touch the ears of the deaf and they're unstopped, as I see Jesus touch the withered man's arm, as I see him break the bread and feed the 5,000, as I see him say to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, I am so charmed by his love, I see the difference between my worldliness and my sin and him. I see him and I say, oh Jesus, grant to me the gift of repentance. And he places within my heart a sorrow for the difference that I am between my faulty, weak, sinful life and his glorious, righteous life. So it is looking at Jesus that we are transformed. It is by understanding his perfection that we understand our imperfection. It is seeing his strength that we recognize our weakness. So notice repentance is a gift. It is not something we work up. It is something he places within our heart. And it does not come by looking at our wretchedness. Our understanding of our wretchedness comes from looking at him. When I look at myself, I never see any possibility to be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I see no possibility to be lost. And so repentance is a gift. If you will notice in the lesson, I have quoted a statement in Acts of the Apostles, page 36. You'll find it in Sunday's lesson, and you'll find it in the middle of the page there. As the disciples waited for the fulfillment of the promise, that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Are we waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit of God in latter rain power today? Are we waiting for that? Is God pouring out His Spirit on the church today? Certainly. 
Do we see the showers of the early rain? Definitely. But before the coming of Christ, will there be an additional outpouring of the Spirit's power in the latter rain to enable us to finish the work? Is that promise there? The disciples waited for that promise. When the disciples met in the other upper room, there were about 120 disciples that met in the upper room. The population of the Roman Empire at the time, there are different population figures that you have by various demographers, but it was probably about 550 to 600 million people. So about 600 million lived in the Roman Empire. You have 120 Christians that meet in the upper room which is a ratio of one to probably at least about a half a million, maybe 600,000. So one Christian to 600,000 people. Now there's one Adventist to every, today, about one Adventist to about every 130 people, about every about 400 people in the world today. But one Adventist to 400 in the world today. But the amazing thing is in the upper room it was one to about 550,000, those disciples met. They sought God, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place, and thousands were baptized in a few short years till there was at least a million Christians by the end of the first century. The task that is before us is no greater than the task that was before them. In fact, it was more difficult often in the days of the Roman Empire than it is today. In many ways, if you look at that from a sociological standpoint. But here's the amazing thing. They met. They repented of their sin. They saw the beauty of Jesus' holiness. They entered into true sorrow. God poured out his spirit. When the church is on its knees, looking at Jesus, seeing ourselves as we are, Christ manifests himself to us. Our lives are transformed by His grace. He empowers us by His Spirit. Now the word repentance in the Greek language is a very fascinating word. It is the word metanahu. Now for a long time I translated that word from Greek to English in a very simple way. And I would say, you know, the word metanahu means simply a change of attitude toward. It does mean that. But if you look at the richness of the word metanatu in the Greek language, repentance, it means much more than a change of attitude. It means a change of attitude that motivates the will, and this is a literal translation of metanatu from the best Greek lexicons. It is a change of attitude which transforms the will and sets it in a direction of obedience. You can have no true repentance without a mind set for obedience. All true repentance leads far beyond a sorrow that is an emotional sorrow. Repentance is not evaluated in the Bible by my tears or my emotional grief. It is evaluated in the Bible by the desire for a lifestyle change. Now that leads us to Monday's lesson, True Repentance Defined. The story is told of a little boy, and this little boy had this habit of leaving his room messy. He was about nine years old, 
And as much as his mom wanted to have his room clean, have him clean his room, he just had his real time. Any of you have a child like that? Clean your room, please. Clean your room. And he kept his room messy. On this particular day, he got out all of his Legos and all of his toys, and his room was a colossal mess. So that night at family worship, his mother felt that she needed to address that. So she said, she talked about repentance and how it was sorrow for what you've done wrong. And she said, son, now what you really need to repent of is mama has told you, clean your room, clean your room, clean your room. Don't leave all your Legos all around. You need to repent. So he knelt down and prayed prayed a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I am so sorry that I left my room so messy today, but it sure was fun. (laughs) Is that repentance? Take your Bible, please, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm so sorry I left my room messy today, but it sure was fun. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we look there at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're looking at verse 9 to 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, is one of the best descriptions in the Bible about genuine repentance and what it's about. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. Now Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's written the first letter to the Corinthians. And somebody said that the church at Corinth was Paul's etc. headache. Um, the church at Corinth, members were suing one another. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. One of the big problems at Corinth was that there was immorality in the church. It was so bad that there was incest in the Corinthian church. You can read about that, 2 Corinthians 5 and onward. And the Corinthians weren't dealing with sin in the church at all. They were treating it very, very lightly. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to them 1 Corinthians. And as he did, it broke their hearts. And they entered into genuine sorrow about the toleration of sin that they had in the church. And Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, that is sorry by my letter, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So if sorrow leads to repentance, can you have sorrow without repentance? You can. You can be sorry because what you did is going to cause circumstances in your own life. You can be sorry that you said something to a husband or wife and they got mad. You can be sorry that you were dishonest and you got caught. You can be sorry for the consequences of the action, but not that your action broke the heart of God. See, true repentance is not that I'm sorry because of the consequences of what happened to me because I sinned. True repentance is I'm so sorry because I dishonored God. I'm so sorry that I hurt another person. I'm so sorry that my words cut deeply into your heart. I'm so sorry that I criticized you, and I'm so sorry that I talked behind your back and it severed our relationship, and I'm so sorry that in all of that I dishonored God. You see, true repentance is when I'm on my knees saying, Jesus, you love me so much. Jesus, your grace is so amazing. Jesus, I hurt you with what I did. So until my sin gives me the pain that it brings to the heart of God, I will never turn loose of it. And so this is what Paul is praying about here. This is what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice, 
that you were made sorry. Not that you're made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. But you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss for us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted. But sorrow of the world produces death. So there's two kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow that produces repentance. What is repentance? It's a change of attitude toward my sin. The thing I once loved, I now hate. The thing I once did casually, now I turn away from in abhorrence. The thing that I once enjoyed doing, now I loathe to do. But it's more than that. It is the setting of the direction of the will to choose to let the thing which I cherished that broke the heart of God go because I no longer want to break his heart. So it looks at Jesus. Now notice the text. Verse 9. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that you are... Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Verse 10, godly sorrow produces repentance. Now notice this verse 11. It's very interesting. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. Now when you sorrow in a godly manner, it produces something. What's the first thing that it produces? What does it produce? Diligence. In other words, when I sorrow in a godly manner and see that my sin has broken the heart of God and I see the grace of Jesus, I become more diligent not to do that thing again. So, what clearing of yourselves when you sorrow in a godly manner if you have hurt another person, you want to clear up that situation between you and the other person. If you've injured somebody else, if you've been dishonest, godly sorrow and repentance, when I recognize I've broken God's heart, leads me to others to reconcile if I've broken their heart. It says, what indignation? What, what does this mean, what indignation? How does godly sorrow lead to indignation? Indignation is a form of strong anger. What does that mean? It means that I'm upset about the thing that I've done. I have indignation toward what I've done and I want to make it right. What fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So true repentance is this godly sorrow because I've broken God's heart that sets my will in a new direction that gives me an indignation or a hatred towards sin and enables me to desire to live differently. We talk about true and false confession in Tuesday's lesson and there is a statement in the book Steps to Christ, page 38, that I'd like to take a look at. But before we do that, let's look at Leviticus 5, verse 5. Let's go to Leviticus 5. This takes us back to the ancient sanctuary. Leviticus 5 and verse 5. In the ancient sanctuary, when somebody sinned, they, of course, brought an offering, sometimes a lamb, and there were other offerings, and the poor brought a pigeon offering or grain offering. In Leviticus 5, verse 5, there is a clear Bible text about what happened when the person brought their offering. It has to do with repentance and it has to do with confession. Leviticus 5 verse 5. 
It says, and it shall be when he's guilty in any of these things that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. What does this Bible passage tell you about the nature of true confession? That true confession is what? Very specific. Has anybody ever come to you and say, you know, if I hurt you by what I said, please forgive me. If I hurt you. What do you know when they say that? It's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is, I am so sorry that I said this specific thing about you. I have gone to the people that I said it to and I've asked them to forgive me and because I have hurt your reputation, please forgive me. That's genuine repentance. In the Old Testament, when a person came with their lamb, they confessed the specific thing. Lord, I've got angry with my neighbor. Lord, I have stolen something. True confession and repentance is always specific. When I get on my knees and pray, I don't say, Lord, if I've sinned, I say, Lord, I watch that on television and I know that that is not in harmony with your will, but I seem to be addicted to it. Looking at Jesus and his greatness and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and how pure you were, Lord, make my heart pure and take that wretched desire out of my soul. Lord, I am jealous of that person. Please, Lord, take that jealousy out of my heart and soul. So true confession is always what, everybody? Specific in nature. Now let's go to Ellen White's statement. This is a remarkable statement that will help somebody here today. True confession, it is page, it is under the section of Tuesday, the page 49, the middle of the page. True confession is always of a, what kind of character? Those of you who have specific character and acknowledges particular sins. Then there's three things. They may be of such a nature as to be brought before God and God only. Where are most of our sins brought before? Before whom? God and God only. Now notice, they may be wrongs that should be confessed to individuals who suffered injury through them. And then it goes on to say, they may be of a public character and should be publicly confessed. How do you know when to confess sin publicly, and how do you know whether the confession of that sin publicly would be detrimental to you in the church? Let me give you a clear rule of thumb, and here's what it is. You repair the fence where it's broken. You repair the fence where it's broken. If I have a farm and I have fence on the north, south, east, and west, and the fence on the north is broken and the sheep and cattle are getting out, and I, repair the, I try to repair the fence on the south, that is nonsensical. So here's the point. If my sin is between me and God, that need not be in any way made public. I confess it to him. But if I have stolen something from you, I don't confess to the church that I stole something from Brother Steve or, or Sister Smith. I go to them and talk to them about that. That's not between them and the church. The fence was not broken there. But if I live a profligate life after becoming a Christian of open rebellion and defame the name of God, 
and the youth and others in the church know it, there may be a time at that point where I come and say, you know, I have lived a life out of harmony with God's purpose. It's publicly known, and I've come to Jesus, and my life has been changed. I want to honor Him. So when do you make public confession? Only when there is public sin that is publicly known. If the sin is between you and somebody else, you don't publicly confess that in the church. You go to that person. Why? Because you want to rebuild the relationship with that person. Notice confession. What is it? Confession is always specific. Now, we put repentance and confession together. What are they? Repentance, a godly sorrow. Seeing Jesus, a change of the mindset, a desire to be more like Christ. Confession, confessing specific sins to God, to another if I've wronged them, to the church only if my life has been profligate in a public way. Looking at our last lesson on Thursday, Confession's Healing Power. And I want to jump over to Thursday's lesson, our last lesson. Confession's healing power. And I like to read the, the uh, paragraph there. Confession lances the boil of guilt. It allows the poisonous pus of sin to drain. Confession is healing in many ways. It opens our hearts to receive God's grace. Through confession, we receive the forgiveness that Christ daily offers us from the cross. Confession is healing because it allows God to us to receive God's grace. Follow me closely. The confession of your sin does not make God love you any more or any less. The confession of your sin enables you to receive His love. The confession of your sin enables you to receive His forgiveness. See, God forgives me on the cross of Calvary. But when I come to that cross, the confession, the, the, the forgiveness that he has wrought out on Calvary becomes mine. When I come to Jesus, he gives me the gift of repentance. He offers me all that he has done for me on Calvary. I love the way it's put in that old hymn of Effie Belden. Look upon Jesus, sinless is he, Father impute his life unto me. My life of scarlet, my sins in woe, cover with his life whiter than snow. Deep are the wounds, deep are the wounds that transgression has made. Red are the stains. My soul is afraid. Oh, to be covered. Jesus with thee, safe from the law that judgeth me, longing for the joy of pardon to know. Jesus holds out a robe white as snow. Lord, I accept it, leaving my own gladly. Gladly, I wear my pure life alone, reconciled by his death for my sin, justified by his life pure and clean, sanctified by obeying his word, glorified 
when returneth my Lord. In Jesus I am reconciled. In Jesus I am justified. In Jesus I am sanctified. In Jesus I am glorified. And that is revival and reformation. Praise his holy name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.